How often do you prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters? How often do you consider threats like cybersecurity, wildfires, earthquakes, or mass casualty events? This is Hometown Ready, an all-hazards emergency management podcast brought to you from the Springfield Green County Office of Emergency Management. We aim to educate, entertain, and spark discussions about all things public safety. So settle in and let's discuss how your community can be hometown ready. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. All right, so this is the first Hometown Ready podcast, so welcome. I'm Austin Arnold. I'm the Area Municipalities Planner here at the Springfield Green County Office of Emergency Management, joined with our PIO, Joe Gelderman. Hello. And our current director, Larry Woods. Hello, everybody. And we've also got two special guests today, uh, Ryan Nichols and Chet Hunter from the Washington University, St. Louis. Um Ryan, as a side note, was also my one of my uh, emergency management instructors while I was in college. So I told him off air that uh, anything that I get wrong in this, I learned from him. So, um, you know, we can blame him for it. So, all right. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, history of emergency management, kind of the history of our office and uh, just, you know, kind of a roundtable just about different emergency management um issues or uh, events past and present of course we're all still dealing with covid-19 so uh we'll we'll probably talk about that here in just a little bit so uh, initiating here with the history of emergency management you know i get all the time oh what do you do for work what's your job and that is the number one question that I hate. I just, I can't stand it because it always leads down the same path, right? So, you know, oh, what do you do? Well, I work in emergency management. Oh, what's that? And I'm not sure if this is quite everyone's experience that works in this industry, but it's certainly mine. And um, so then I have to go through explaining things and they're like, oh, so you're like FEMA. Well, yes and no. Um, So emergency management as a whole just began kind of a civil defense following World War I. It grew exponentially after the threat of nuclear weapons were realized. And generally, when we think of civil defense, we think of uh, post-World War I um, over into the Cold War. So there's quite a span of decade there, um, decades rather, where, you know, well, what exactly did they do then? Well, so throughout history, uh, different presidents, different administrations have kind of had a different vision. But really, if we take kind of 50 years into the future, the Carter administration, uh, following specifically Hurricane Carla in 1962, the San Fernando earthquake in 1971, and Hurricane Agnes in 1972, the Carter administration formed FEMA in 1978 and was originally um, actually instituted in 1979. So with these natural disasters, you know, it just kind of increased the need for uh, relief, um, you know, more of a shift from defense to natural disaster planning and response and recovery. So further down the line, closer to present day, President Bill Clinton appointed James Lee Witt as the FEMA director. And he is 
credited with uh, raising FEMA's level of professionalism and their ability to respond to disasters, natural disasters, man-made disasters, um, you know, issues uh, on an international scale uh, that may affect the United States. So, you know, guys, our uh, our history kind of follows that almost to a T. Of course, we, you know, look at federal guidance and state guidance and, and kind of what's, you know, the the political landscape and everything that kind of directs where we go as an organization. And so um, I'm going to open it up to you three, really, because you guys are the experts um, to kind of talk about the history of OEM. So uh, Springfield Green County Office of Emergency Management, we were originally formed as a civil defense agency during the Cold War. Is that correct, Larry? Uh, it, it is. We actually... Uh, we started out in the early 50s uh, as a civil defense agency here in, in Springfield and Greene County. And uh, and from there, we just kind of grew into the emergency management organization that we are today. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we followed a similar path as FEMA, obviously, with, you know, finding our way through the arduous work of the original directors and and uh, subsequent directors. And so, like I said, we got two of them on uh, today with us. It's Ryan Nichols and Chet Hunter. So, Ryan, good afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. Hey, so I'm glad that you could join us. Uh, so give us a little bit of history because you were, uh, you know, from this span of time that we're talking about, you were the director here from 06 to 2014. Is that right? That is correct, yes. So tell us just a little um, bit about kind of what brought you into emergency management. Oh, yeah, great. So, yeah, I came in in 2006, uh, started uh, getting into emergency management academically first and had a few uh, small experiences and then ended up in Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And, uh, and but prior to that, uh, when I was serving this in academics, or, or learning it, uh, I connected with the Spring Fa Springfield Green County Office of Emergency Management, and that's where I first met Larry. He was uh, my mentor at the time and still is um, at that. And and also his, the director at the time was Joey McElwain. Um, we would not do justice if we don't recognize all of his efforts. So he had been in the position for 17 years prior to uh, my coming on board and kind of what Larry kind of just some hinted at a little bit, kind of changed from a civil defense mindset to an emergency management and somewhat of an all hazards. And as you've already alluded to, a lot of the direction we go is obviously influenced by, by FEMA and others. So you have, you know, James Lee Witt in the 90s, you have 9-11, which obviously impacted a lot and, and some money and funds that came to that. And Hurricane Katrina in 2005 is, I came on board right after that. So there's a lot of all hazard emphasis back uh, in after the Katrina era. And so uh, with Larry and, and a small staff, we, we worked there for several years and, and hopefully built um, uh, a program that uh, from an emergency management perspective, and back to your original question, what do you do all day? It's really that all hazards uh, mitigation and preparedness effort. That's, that's what we do. And then minimize as much as we can, the response to recovery, but we do it when we need to. And hopefully it goes, it goes as, a, as smooth as possible. Right, for sure. Beautifully said. You know, I want to touch on something that you were talking about. You know, you said, you know, built the program that we have today, and Larry talked about that just a minute ago. But I want to talk about not so much the program, but the public safety center that we're in right now. Well, that Larry, Joe, and I are in right now. Um, obviously, on our Zoom screen, it looks a little bit different because you guys didn't have a podcast studio when it was first built. But it was it started being built in 2011 and opened in 2012. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. And so again, uh, a lot of it is based on on vision and opportunities. And so in 2007, uh, I'm sure Larry probably remembers, we had an ice storm in January. It was right on our 15-year mark that we just remembered. And that really helped open the door to some of the inadequacies that we had at the time. We were just across the street there in a 1905 or 06 uh, uh, building that was originally built as a candy factory. But uh, uh, best efforts given, uh, we utilized it. Joey and Larry built it. We utilized it the best we can, but it just it was pretty insignificant and, and uh, not very capable for the capacity that we envisioned. And so uh, the, the idea of the Public Safety Center has always rested and I'll give all credit to into Larry's mind he he has the vision for it and so I think Larry and I and team um, built on his vision and we outlined it in paper and then sought out the funding and and got a lot of really good uh, leadership support from Springfield and Green County and then a few grants uh, came our way and that and they, the stars just kind of aligned for us and it all kind of came together and so uh, now there's the center there that uh, hopefully continues. I know continues to serve as a as a pretty good asset for public safety um, initiatives and response um, uh, incidents that happen there. I think uh, Austin, you, you you mentioned the ice storm. I think the ice storm was really the the turning point for emergency management in our community because uh, at at that time we had a lot of. Uh, support and a lot of buy-in from our elected officials and uh, they actually came to the old EOC saw what we had to work with worked in it with us saw that you know it was wholly inadequate for for our needs and that really uh, I think is what jump-started the the talk uh, about a new facility and and what it could look like and and what it should be And, uh, and from there you know we as a as an emergency management team just kind of ran with it and we're able to 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 get to where we are today well and something that you know you guys have told me before is that you guys went on like a cross country trip and i want to think it's kind of like a cross country road trip like the lampoons or something but uh where you guys are just you know hanging out and and stopping just causing chaos along the way we but, were in a volkswagen beetle like a volkswagen bus is what we did it in actually right right party bus and you guys went on like this tour of several different uh emergency operation centers around the country um and then you kind of designed it, you know, you made pros and con list and kind of designed it based on on what you saw and what you liked and what you didn't like. And so really this entire place is so interesting because you look at every, you know, I mean, from the paint and the carpet and, you know, everything. And it's really just interesting how you guys went ahead and designed this. And, you know, I mean, I'm not breaking the glass here or anything, but you look at what some other uh, places have or what they don't have and what they have to, you know, work with and deal with and they make it work, you know, by and large, but, um, we're very, very, very fortunate here to have the foresight of the, uh, well, of you guys that designed the place, but also the, uh, commission that let it happen and the, uh, you know, taxpayers and all that. So we, we've got to give credit to, to them too, but, uh, we're very, very fortunate where we're at right now. So that's, I mean, that's well said. I mean, there's two points there. We, we always have been and want to be fiscally responsible. 
uh, in a government realm. And also we wanted to build something that was going to be effective and usable. And, you know, we had one chance to get this right. And so uh, Larry had a vision in his mind. And, you know, back to your original start with James Lee Witt and a lot of the funds that he used out west, uh, they built some pretty good standard standardized DOCs. And so we, we did take that trip out there and, and gathered a lot of data. That wasn't the only place we got information from, but it was, it was a big part of that. But we wanted to do it right. And we re- we went at it originally, initially with, you know, no no limitations. Let's just let's put everything on paper with what would be the ideal world. And then we'll just scale back as as necessary. And, and then the end result is is the public safety center that I think we all agree with is is a, a good result of, of a lot of hard work. And interest, interestingly, we actually started designing the facility clear back in 2002, uh, when at that time the director Joe McElway he he came to came to me and said, "Well, you know, I, I think we might have some uh, uh, movement towards maybe getting a new facility, and so why don't you kind of start putting pen to paper and you know start kind of sketching out what this might look like." And and that that momentum lasted for about two months, I think, and then. Uh, we just kind of kept building on that. Uh, we, you know, we started putting kind of a three-ring binder together, and we just kind of started building on that and kept building on it. And then uh, when we got to the uh, 2007 era, era then uh, we were able to actually use some of that clear back from 2002 that we built on and, and just keep it going. One of the things I like to be is in Larry's office with pen and paper and unlimited dreams. Right. And it just it just goes. It's also a very scary place to be too. If you get too many dreams, and uh, you run out of paper and pen pretty quick. So, well, you know, I think it's I think it's a great time to point out, like I love to do with Larry, that what did you say, two thousand two? Two thousand two is when we started. Yeah, I was seven years old. So let's start there. You're welcome. Yeah, so, that's that's painful. So I was really hoping to be the biggest beard on the podcast, but I've I've been shown up. So. Chet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for uh, having a beer, bigger beard than me and giving me beard envy. How are you today, Chet? It's you know, it's thanks, thanks for having me, and uh, it's it's what I do best. I just grow hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Chet, you were here twenty. Well, you were director twenty fourteen to twenty seventeen. Are those years correct? Uh, sixteen. 16 so okay. yeah, so twenty fall and sixteen, super okay. close. You know, I got to come in on the heels of, wow, all this incredible work that Ryan and Larry did with the ESC. And I I remember joking in the early years, early years, <laughs> those first couple months, like, hey, you built a great facility, Ryan, but you left me everything broken. <laughs> like any like anything new, you know, that those first two years are are nice and great. And then things kind of, you know, the, the, the you got to change the tires on the car and you got to got to make sure stuff's happening. And so. Um, we saw, you know, being, you talk about being fiscally responsible, we've really started having to, having to show not only leadership, but the community that the functionality of that building, just even if they saw it in uh, numbers. And so we were constantly digesting the amount of stuff going on in that facility and being able to make sure we shared that with, with the right people. And so they understood that that product was really well worth its weight in gold. It certainly is. Right. Yeah. And one of the things to mention is that, you know, the, the facility itself, we haven't really used for a full activation except, I mean, COVID, if you want to count that, because 
we had a lot of people down on the EOC floor um, for a bit, but then we realized putting a whole bunch of uh, public safety uh, leaders and, you know, government officials and things like that together in one room during a global pandemic probably isn't the best route. Uh, so then we kind of went to a virtual configuration of an EOC, which I think is new for every single person on the planet. Maybe not an EOC activation, but my wife, she was a teacher right. at the time. Uh, now we've got too many kids that I, that she can't continue her teaching habits. So she had to stay at home mom and homeschool. Um, but something that everyone's had to deal with regarding COVID not only the annoyance, but also just doing everything virtually. I mean, clearly we're talking on Zoom right now. Uh, three years ago, that wasn't even a concept. Like no one had really, you know, you had Skype and stuff like that, but no one had really utilized any sort of virtual presence or, you know, whatever, uh, telecommunication software like we do now. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of, you know, the history of OEM, the history of emergency management and one thing that I'm really passionate about being, I think I even wrote a paper about this in um, in class when I was when I was studying for my degree, was just innovating and you know preparing for the next generation of emergency management professionals and of emerging threats like you know cyber attacks and ransomware and all that type of stuff. Um, I mean, now we've got cryptocurrencies and, you know, people that are stealing that and everything. So it's really interesting that, you know, you guys, I mean, Ryan, I don't want to make you sound old again, but yes. from, from two, but I'm going to from 2006. So then we fast forward to 2017 and Larry took over or 2016, I guess. And, uh, Larry took over and he's, he's currently the director, um, so, I mean, obviously, since Larry started with the office, we've come a long way. I say we like I was here, like, you know, uh, but you guys came a long way. Like the, the building itself has seen a lot. Uh, the city's seen a lot of growth. And this podcast is kind of just another step in that direction. But what's some of the milestones for you, Larry? Uh, uh, I think, I mean, as you alluded to, I think that the. Um, the thing about emergency management is we constantly have to be changing the way we think about the hazards that, that the world brings. Uh, you know, if you would have told me in 1995 when I started in, in the role of emergency manager. What month? Uh, that would have been uh, June of 1995. That was before I was born. Go ahead. You're welcome. Um, and you know, that we would be dealing with, uh, uh, cyber, cyber issues. I mean, the internet at that time was in, it's really still kind of infancy. And, um, you know, we still had these huge cathode ray tube computer monitors and, and all this kind of stuff. If you would have told me that, that cyber, anything I'm mean, at that point, I don't even know if we knew it's the term cyber was, uh, was going to be a problem in the future. Then I would have just looked at you like, okay, you're crazy. Uh, but, you know, never would we have thought that uh, we would have sustained a, a large terrorism attack uh, in 2001. Uh, you know, it's just, I think, uh, just the constant uh, need to be out on the, the tip of the spear when it comes to uh, 
defining what the next hazard is and then what are our vulnerabilities to that hazard is 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 huge in in, in the role of an emergency manager and that's that's something that we have to deal with every day. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting, guys, when you take a look at kind of what all we've experienced. You know, I've had I had a supervisor previous uh for me. I went out with a dispatcher that she was like, Man, you know what? Austin's so young, he doesn't know a world without Harry Potter. He doesn't know a world without TSA. So nine eleven was a good point. I mean, nine eleven's not a good point, but um but it was you know that's that's one of those things that really kind of sticks out in my mind as a turning point for the country, the world, uh, whatever you want to you know allude it to. Because when you take a look at all the change that was brought on by nine eleven, it's kind of eerily similar to all the change that's sh- showing its face now with COVID. You know, we had masking where before we didn't. You know, we have uh, wiping everything down religiously with Clorox wipes. Um, I mean, it's something that I never thought I'd deal with or experience or whatever. And I've kind of been a germaphobe my whole life, but I mean, good grief, you know, it's, it's a bit taxing. So, so, you know, what, what has been the biggest change or the biggest surprise for you guys dealing with this, where you guys are? Well, I'll just, on that point, uh, before we dive down that, I'll, I'd like to build on what Larry's pointing out there. You know, when we do disaster education presentations, and when I was at Springfield County, we did them a lot. And in fact, right after the ice storm, I think we did like 90 or 100 first few months. But one of the things we always teach or emphasize from an individual preparedness is complacency. We always, I always consider that our enemy to emergency management is, 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 or preparedness is complacency. We can't be complacent. But the Larry's point is we teach the public not to get complacent in their preparedness. Emergency management is the same in our profession as we cannot get complacent with new hazards or new emerging threats. Because if we do, then we're going to get caught off guard by cyber or pandemics or volcanoes in Tonga or whatever it may be. We can't get complacent both in our preparedness and as a profession. And I just think we owe it to those that we serve that it's always was my goal that nothing was going to be a surprise. Now, oftentimes things were, but my goal in our planning efforts was whatever we plan for, nothing is going to be a surprise when it happens because we've already planned for it. And that's kind of the goal or the standard we try to set when we go through these mind pro- mind-boggling processes because we don't want to be surprised. I mean, to Larry's credit, I'll give you a, a real specific example was when I was there, we hosted a three-day music concert out uh, there just uh, east of on 65 Highway there by the underground, Larry. I know you you know what I'm talking about. And it's mid-June, and we're planning with the event planners, and Larry is adamant that we're going to plan for a tornado. And the, the risk for tornado in June was there. It wasn't great. Everybody else thought we were crazy, but we did it anyways. And lo and behold, the the prime the the star event for that night, I think it was train or someone was playing and National Weather Service is on site. We go under a tornado warning and we evacuate the premise and move a lot of the people to the underground cave that had all been 
pre-planned. And so you just didn't want to be caught by surprise. And I think we owe it that even though sometimes we may think on the extremes or be accused of such, if we get complacent, then then surprises happen and, and people get hurt or, or li- lives are lost because of it. Right. Well, and I think that uh, I, 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 I kind of joke about this, but the reality is true based on what Ryan said, you know, the taxpayers actually pay us to tell them the sky is falling. You know, they, they actually pay us to think of all of the worst case scenarios that could happen and be ready for it on their behalf. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, I think it's important that, um, that we continue to do that because just over the last 20 years, things that, that people had no concept could happen. The terrorists are going to fly loaded passenger jets into buildings, really? Or uh, we're going to have uh, hurricanes increasing in severity and strength to the point that, you know, 1,800 people in Katrina are going to die, you know, and others are going to be just uh, completely left destitute. Uh, not in, not in the United States. Uh, uh, our staff... They, they give me a hard time because I, I, I'm still pitching electromagnetic pulse as a problem. Uh, and they, they look at me like I'm silly and stupid. But Well, real quick, you can tell if you can hear Chet and Ryan both laughing. It's because they know Larry. And literally everyone I've talked to about this, I talked to one of our old PIOs a couple months ago, and I said something about, well, you know how Larry is. And she's like, oh, yeah, Mr. Chicken Little over there. So... I mean, this is this is a thing. So go ahead, Larry. Well, I, it may be, but he's never been wrong. I, absolutely, that that's what I was going to get into. I'm never, I'm never laughing at him again. Well, okay, yes, I am, but I'm never going to tell him that he is going to be wrong because I was so wrong about COVID. Because I remember specifically January or maybe it was February of 2020. We were sitting in the policy room in our in our big, you know room where we hold our staff meetings and uh, we were sitting there and Larry sat all the staff down. He goes, okay, listen, you guys know I have a background in emergency medicine. Yeah. Okay. You know that I, you know, and so we went on this whole thing and he went on this tangent of how COVID was going to take over the world and be awful and shut down industry and this, that, and the other. And we're all laughing at him like, you have done lost your mind, Larry. And he was right. <laughs> he was right. So this whole EMP thing, it's like, okay, Nostra Larry, tell me when this is going to happen so that I can be prepared. Because just telling me it will happen, I believe you. Yeah, he, he likes to remind me of that. So that's why I remind him that I was born in 1995. I, I think what's interesting about this conversation probably one of the biggest struggles for emergency management is really the failure of imagination and that sounds like a lot like a fun phrase to say but i mean we all have dreamed of what disaster could be and would look like but government doesn't fund imagination unfortunately it typically i mean mitigation is probably the closest thing you could get to (laughs) fund imagination but it really doesn't i mean for you know, Larry to walk into a, a commission's meeting and say, all right, I want to throw X number of dollars at EMP preparations. It would it would be a little bit of a of a fall 
fallout. And so no pun intended. I don't know. Yeah. No, no pun intended. You know, the trick for this game is, is how do you, how do you convince? And, um, we've been through a couple different, I mean, Larry, I think back to Ebola, that was kind of our first, not really a pandemic, but first look at a more of a global reach across bad, bad yep, stuff. Yep. And a little bit of a flush with that. And back, you know, back when Ryan was there and I mean, we're good at floods. We're good at tornadoes. I said, good. We know, we know the playbook. Yeah. We're in the but Midwest. We... We're used to it. Uh, that's just a Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Brock Long's FEMA administration that came out with the, is it the brick grant system that kind of tends to throw at more money at mitigation dollars to help with some of that imagination growth. That's not really, I'm paraphrasing to an extreme here, but uh, even at, even at the university, we struggle funding imagination. So that certainly will get in the way, but it seems like uh, Larry has, has a constant in his imagination. It certainly doesn't, doesn't sway by the dollar. Well, And I, and I think the, Emergency management runs into the problem of, you know, not not only are we kind of considered the sky is falling folks, but, you know, we're the folks that bring up things that nobody wants to think about. You know, nobody wants to think about uh, a global pandemic. Nobody wants to think about, oh, well, half your community is going to get blown away by a tornado. Um, those aren't happy things that anybody wants to talk about, uh, but yet that's kind of our bread and butter. So we have to talk about it. Um, and so I think that causes us to have to struggle maybe more to, to get the funding, to um, convince people that it is a thing and we, we do need to be concerned with it. Um, I think a lot of times we're kind of looked at as the, you know, break, break glass in case of, you know, in case of need. And the rest of the time we're kind of, you know, in the background, just writing our plans but um, that being said, I think it's incredibly important that we don't lose our initiative. We don't lose our our whole community vision for uh, hazards and vulnerability because we, if we do, we do a, a, an injustice to the to the public that would you know that we serve. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, we were talking previously before we started recording that. Uh, you know, Ryan's teaching um, a class that he really likes and social vulnerabilities to disasters. And that's, you know, I've got that on my bookshelf, that textbook still from his class. And you know, that was one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite classes to take just because it goes through things that you don't think about. And so you don't think about, you know, well, for example, bring it back to COVID because why not? Um, we now have on interpreters for ASL on like everything. And that was something that I never considered because I'm not deaf, you know. Um, I now, you know, you notice it. But previously, you just you really don't think about those vulnerabilities if you're not faced with them. And so that's why, you know, continuing education and, and getting more experience based on the different disasters and everything that we have, it's easy to silo yourself into, well – this is just the response. This is what we do. This is, you know, and never really deviating from that. And that's a good point because uh, Larry's talked a lot about, you know, we never want to be surprised and we always want to know the tip of the spear is the phrase Larry often uses of knowing what hazards are coming. But to your point there, it gets very complex because uh, 
the impact from disasters is so unequal. I mean, to every type of social vulnerability that we have out there is just magnified in any type of disaster. And so, you know, we can say things are going to happen, but a bit the, the where where our where our benefit or our value is as emergency management is identifying the impacts and the complexity of the impacts and and the word that's already been used mitigating or minimizing those impacts because we can say um, cyber or tornado may come but how it affects everyone in in whatever uh, current crisis that they're at in their life is so individualized and now this gets added on to it it really adds a lot of uh, importance to to pre-planning and response so I'm 26 years old, and I've had 21 kids, over 21 kids, actually. Uh, do the math there and try and figure that one out. I'm a foster and adoptive parent, and so my mind has been broken open, I think is the best way of putting it. Uh, broken open with splitting headaches sometimes um, because being a foster parent, you really see kind of the, the vast array of of those vulnerabilities that, you know, that exist from either behavioral, mental, um, you know, accessible needs, you know, stuff like that. And it's really interesting that just the dynamic that you have and being able to kind of, well, being able to be in this profession and kind of view it from that lens is like, okay, so what do we need to do differently for this group? Not necessarily that they have different needs than everyone else, but to an extent they do, but it also kind of, shows you that not all vulnerabilities are visual. You can't just see what everyone's going through, right? And so we've we've seen that a lot with the pandemic is everyone's, you know, mental health and trying to take care of yourself. And I really see that as kind of like a revolution of self-care and really trying to trying to take care of yourself and your family. And so, you know, when you take a look at all these different needs and then you throw in you know, and that's that's what we'd call a blue sky need, you know, um, you know, people in poverty and, and people that have, uh, you know, de- developmental delays and and stuff like that, medical needs. And then you throw something in like a tornado or an earthquake or whatever. And you've just I mean, you've exponentially magnified that problem for that person. And so, of course, we can't have a tailored response for every single person in the world, but man, how do we try and kind of encompass all these needs and meet them to the best of our ability? And so, you know, that's something that's just really kind of something that that I'm really passionate about specifically, and it's that whole community approach. You know, we're not just we're not just uh, meeting the needs of those that look like me, talk like me, sound like me, whatever. Um, but you've you've really got to kind of take into account everything, and and in doing so is learning about different cultures and different you know religions and stuff like that. And so it's very interesting, and you know there's still a lot of room to grow in emergency management, obviously, because we don't have all the answers. As much as we like to sit around and and think that we do, we certainly don't. Now, Larry might know every hazard that's going to impact us and give us a warning, and and I won't take that warning. We'll all make fun of him in a staff meeting, but then he'll end up being right, and then you know where do we go from there? I promise you, he's thought of it. Right. Yeah. Well, and I and I think that uh, those nights without sleep. 
I, I don't, I don't sleep a lot. I think that, um, you guys kind of hit it on the head that in, in emergency management, the field of emergency management, we, we have to take every people group, every circumstance into consideration because there's not a disaster that is out there, whether it's the pandemic, an ice storm, a tornado, a flood, whatever, terrorism, that uh, some people group doesn't isn't affected. I think back to the ice storm, Ryan, you may remember, you know, one of our big, big deals was uh, how do we get folks who need dialysis who would normally, you know, get there on their own and can't get there on their own, on their own for whatever reason, how do we get them from their house to their, their dialysis appointment back again? You know, and that's not something we, you know, traditionally deal with, but because, because of the situation we had to deal with it. Yeah. They needed oxygen. There's just a lot of really specific individual needs that uh, had to be addressed. In the COVID, uh, you know, in the current COVID situation, uh, our homeless population has has been a, a large, um, you know, worry for us because we we want to make sure that that people group uh, is as well taken care of as you know anyone else in the community. So um, it's just you know, there's there's we we in emergency management have to have to consider, as as Austin said, the 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 whole community, on uh, regardless of the you know the social economic, you know structure or whatever whatever it is, we have to make sure that everybody is covered equally. Absolutely, and I, and you know it's not even necessarily, um, you know, for example, I'll just keep going back to this: those in poverty that we need to. Assist. It's even those that are very, very well off because those people have problems too, you know. So it's it's all encompassing and it's really interesting once you take a look at, you know, I mean, I guess what the uh, vast majority would think or or what people perceive as a need or an emergency function or something like that, you know, just to make sure that we kind of cover all bases. And Larry, when was that? Was that early 2021 when we had that um, – issue southwest and here where i mean the texas the pipelines froze and the and we couldn't get what that was that was last uh last winter yes the days and weeks and years now at this point just kind of run together i can't remember if it's something that happened in 2019 or two weeks ago so and that was actually a you know an unprecedented uh situation where it got so cold that uh, our utilities had problems keeping up with uh the demand uh, and it was, uh, you know, that again, we went for, you know, a week and a half there where, you know, that while we did have plans in place to address it, it was just not something that, uh, we had had to deal with, uh, you know, it's, you know, we're not, uh, Montana or North Dakota here, you know, we don't see those kind of temperatures, but, uh, for that time frame, we did. And it was, uh, it was certainly a problem. Well, and the poor people of Texas, they were freezing to death. I mean, Literally it was pre- 50 degrees down there, for yeah. gosh sakes. Yeah, right. Like we we like to poke fun at those in the south because like, oh, it's it's 70 degrees and you need a you need a jacket because it's chilly. Um, but man, seriously, though, those people were just having a problem. And even recently that deal, what was it, I-95 over in like Virginia or something that they had that like 15 to 20 hour standstill traffic because it was it was on the interstate and i saw that this guy 
was wanting to walk home to be with his kid, and he they found him frozen to death on along the highway. And, okay, here's the deal. Full disclosure, I have six kids. I have four adopted, and I have my first two biological that are four months old right now. I would not walk home to my kids in a blizzard. Like, there's just, I don't need that screaming in my life at that point, right? I'm just, I'm going to try and take a nap in my car, hope that the heat stays. My wife's got the kids under control. I don't need that in my life. No, kidding. Thank God she's never going to listen to this. Anyway, um... So, yeah, I mean, clearly emergency management's went, I mean, everywhere, you know. You've got uh, business continuity. I mean, Walmart has their own corporate, you know, business emergency operations center. Uh, Waffle House has the Waffle House index of how bad a hurricane's going to be. Um, you know, interestingly, just a few years ago, uh, emergency man- the field of emergency management as a uh, and a department in a university system was a, was a new thing. And now, you know, look at it now is virtually every university, you know, in the United States has, has an emergency management department. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I kind of, I've been trying to get to this, um, even though it doesn't sound like I have, but Ryan check, can you guys kind of give us an idea, uh, for those listening that, you know, kind of what you guys do at WashU? Well, basically, um, I just do what Ryan tells me to do. <laughs> I, I get I get the opportunity. I'll, I'll be really quick. Um, the university is campus wide is, is is fairly vast, and so I I'm positioned as an assistant director over on the Danforth campus and responsible for the ancillary campuses, uh, Northwest, South, and Tyson Research Center. And uh, mostly, my population that I'm overseeing are your large undergrad students. So that that's kind of the makeup of that. So that's that first first just got out of high school, first year student, all the way up through uh, graduation. So that's the that's the 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 thrust of what I work with on a daily basis and do all things emergency management um, as as it's common commonplace in the field. Awesome. Hey, sounds good, guys. Well, you know what? I really appreciate you guys being on and. Um, you know, we'll we'll probably have you guys back on if if for nothing else than at least to talk about kind of the the uh, university life of an emergency manager. And so uh, it's it's really interesting. It's a it's a very interesting world when you kind of delve into it and you kind of fall down that rabbit hole and get trapped. I'm assuming that's what you guys would would say happen. But uh, well, hey, thanks guys. Like I said, for joining us today, and this is the first of many hometown ready podcast uh episodes so thank you ryan thank you chet for joining us and larry thank you thank you how was it is it good oh it was great for our first shot all right let's go i think that one's good for a wrap joe take us out tune in next month for a new discussion in the hometown ready studio your all hazards emergency management podcast But before you leave, don't forget to click on that subscribe button and let us know how you liked today's episode. And as always, be aware and take care.